In just a few minutes, I'm going to uh, go with you to the book of Malachi, but I'd like to read for you a uh, statement here. Um, some of you may want to take some notes during the service. Maybe you'll hear a thought or a reference that will be a blessing to you. Um, but I would like to read, I have a little compilation here. Um, about as we near the close of time, <clears throat> and I'd like to read this to you. I have, this is one statement out of a couple pages. <clears throat> Let me just read this to you. <clears throat> Excuse me. As we near the close of time, we must rise higher and still higher on the question of health reform and Christian temperance, presenting it in a more positive and decided manner. So I'm going to read that once more. As we near the close of time, we must rise higher and still higher on the question of health reform and Christian temperance, presenting it in a more positive and decided manner. Now, I w- you know, for the few times that I'm here, it's uh, always a scramble to decide, well, what am I even going to spend my time on? Because there's the, the shelf of truth is huge. But I would encourage anyone here, <clears throat> I've been very blessed by this lady. There's a lady named Barbara O'Neill who has a clinic in Australia. And she has some very good information on health. And I would suggest that you would take some time to look her up. YouTube, Barbara O'Neill, very easy to find her. She has a presentation on exercise. She has one on fasting. And she has one on the mind. She believes that no matter how long you live, your mind can improve. In fact, she has research that's come out since 1998 that proves if you do certain things in your lifestyle that you, that it will create uh, a reaction in the brain called neurogenesis where the brain actually begins creating new brain cells. And uh, she also has a very interesting perspective on exercise, which all of us need to be doing some of. Everybody, everybody ought to be doing at least 20 minutes a day or more. For me, 20 minutes isn't good enough. I like an hour. But uh, of some very good exercise each morning. Please watch this, lady. And I just read to you a a divine directive that as we draw near to the close of time, we are to rise higher and still higher on the question of health reform because God wants us to be the very best for him physically, mentally, and spiritually. Okay? Barbara O'Neill, YouTube, and um, I would really, really recommend that to you. Well, I hope all of you are excited about witnessing and you're doing what you can to witness and share this message with other people. Uh, Just very recently, I was at a home, talked to a nice lady, And she said, have you talked to my father-in-law? I said, well, no. I said, I'm coming from the other direction. She said, well, he lives over there. 
So I drove in this driveway, and it was uh, a farmer back there, and he happened to be there. And I showed him the book, Great Controversy, and <clears throat> he said, yeah, he said, I'll get that book. So he said, follow me to my truck. We walked over to another building, and while we were walking, he said, well, what church do you go to? What, what, are you associated with any denomination is what he said. I said, well, I said, I'm a Protestant. And I said, but the denomination I'm with is Seventh-day Adventist. I said, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. He said, you know what? He said, at our church, we were just talking about you. Not me, but Seventh-day Adventist. And uh, he said, you know, he said, uh, there's no place in the Bible where it teaches uh, Sunday keeping. He said, that was changed by man. He said, in fact, Constantine changed it. Wow, we had a really nice conversation. And uh, he just goes to a little country church there in uh, the country. And the group, his group had been discussing this. And Lord willing, I hope to meet with them tonight as they have a Bible study Saturday nights for an hour. And uh, he made me welcome to come. So I told him I'd come. Um, we have a, a relative um, now because of our youngest in the home. And this lady came to our home this week to bring some things for the little one that we have. And uh, she lives about three hours away. So she came visit a little bit. I just happened to be there. And before she left, I told her, I said, uh, I said, I have a little book I want to give to you. And I told her, I said, this book will, I don't remember exactly what all I said, but I, one thing I said to her I said, I said, this book will give you a lot of hope to read. And she broke. She went to tears. She hugged my wife. And she said, I need that right now. We have no idea the burdens that many people are carrying. And brothers and sisters, we have the message. And since then, she's texted my wife and said she found the book on audio. And she's listening to it. So whatever we can do to encourage precious people to get ready for Jesus' soon coming, brothers and sisters, putting a book in their hands is a powerful way to communicate with them and share with them because you're gone, the message is still there, and they can continue to read it. And when I share a book with someone, one of the things I like to tell them is this book will give you a lot of hope to read. Another thing I like to suggest to their thinking, I tell them you need if you will read this book very carefully, it will be a wonderful blessing to you. Amen. I'd like for you to go to the book of Malachi. <clears throat> now, I'm going to backtrack. Before we do that, I want to take you to the book of Proverbs. Just incidentally, I want to share with you something there. And then we'll go to the book of Malachi. Go to the book of Proverbs, chapter Four and verse seven. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter four, verse seven. Now, in this verse, Proverbs four, seven, and eight, we read about wisdom. Now, in the New Testament, it says that Jesus Christ has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So Jesus is our wisdom. Here in Proverbs, it's talking about wisdom. So really, we are talking about Christ and the wisdom that he gives. Okay? I'd just like to read this to you. It's so good. And I would urge you to read the book of Proverbs. Absolutely tremendous book 
It has gems of truth in it that we in these last days need to comprehend to give voice and direction to our proclaiming of the three angels' messages. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. It says, wisdom is the principal thing. That means the main thing. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she shall promote thee. Exalt her, and she shall promote thee. She shall bring thee to honor when thou dost embrace her. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? And as I referred this this morning in Sabbath school to uh, Proverbs chapter 8, where Jesus is personified as wisdom, it says, 835, it says, Who so findeth me findeth life and shall obtain favor of the Lord. Proverbs 835, but 836 says, But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. Brothers and sisters, the law of God is for our good. His word is for our good. Sin, if you read it, it's very clear in Proverbs. It's very clear in the Psalms and certainly throughout the Bible. Sin is a self-destructive, self-defeating principle. And ultimately, the fruit of sin is so bad, the Lord's going to burn it in the lake of fire. Get rid of it. May God help us to see the preciousness of Christ. Now, the book of Malachi is an absolutely wonderful book. I want to spend a little bit of time in it today. It's a book that could take many sermons. Uh, I really like the book, but I believe the book is for the last days. And uh, our young brother read from Malachi chapter 3, which I would like to look at here briefly and uh, take some time to look at some of the things again in the book of Malachi. Now, we know that the book of Malachi is for the last days because of the of the language that's employed in the book. Yes, it was for the people of Malachi's time, which was about 400 years before Christ, but it's especially focused for God's people in the last days. Like it says in Malachi chapter 4, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. One of the things that the last gospel message is going to do in these last days is is it's going to show itself very powerful to heal the damage in human hearts and human souls and the damage in families and restore families. God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you look at Abraham's family and Isaac's family and Jacob's family, especially Jacob's family, they had some big-time troubles. But look at what the Lord did to get a hold of their hearts and convert those 12 boys uh, or uh, 11 boys of Jacob uh, in relationship to their brother. But anyway, God is going to do a great work in these last days. Um. In Malachi chapter 3, I want to read this again and then just comment on that and then 
move along as we can. Malachi chapter 3. Let's read this passage. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment and will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swears and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Now, this passage here definitely had an application to the first advent of Christ. John the Baptist was the messenger who was the forerunner of Christ. And he told of the coming of the Messiah. And, of course, Jesus was revealed in the temple of Jerusalem in his day. But it especially has a last-day application. Now, in the book, Great Controversy, page 424, we have the inspired comment. And, by the way, brothers and sisters, I believe that Ellen G. White was given the gift of prophecy And that her work bears every mark of inspiration. And that there is a authenticating power and truthfulness in her writings that anybody that will honestly read them will say, yes, this woman was inspired of God. I have a friend, I'll just digress for a moment, tell you this, who was searching for truth and he made the decision that he would not read any books at all, except the Bible. He said, I actually stayed with that course for four years. One day, the book Great Controversy came to his home in the mail, and he had curiosity over the book. He hesitated whether or not he should read it. He decided he would examine what the book had to say. I think he said he read the whole book in about a week. He really devoured it. He said, when I read the last chapter, he said, I closed the book and he turned and I turned to my wife and and I said with tears in my eyes, he said, that book is inspired, inspired. It's a tremendous book. So is the book Desire of Ages and the book Great Connor and the book Patriarchs and Prophets. Tremendous books, brothers and sisters. We have a tremendous storehouse of truth in the Bible because the illumination that's given us. But in the book, Great Controversy, page 424, I maybe read it to you the last time I was here, but it clearly brings out the fact that this coming of the Lord to his temple, being sudden, was a fulfillment of the Millerite movement when they anticipated and expected that Jesus would come back to the earth in 1844. Instead, he did not come to the earth in 1844. He came to the most holy place in the sanctuary in heaven. As you will read in various places in the Bible, uh, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel says, and I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him a dominion and kingdom and glory that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. Here Daniel is shown Christ transported by a heavenly host. He comes to the Father, 
And now, as you read in Daniel 7, 9, and 10, the judgment is begun. The Supreme Court of the universe is now begun, as was announced in the Bible and by the Millerite movement in 1844. We are now living under the proclamation of that message. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. When that is over, then all the decisions for eternity will have been decided, and Christ is going to come back and take his people home. Okay? Now, that being said, we're looking here at a description of what Christ as our high priest does in the most holy place. Okay? In fact, if you, when you read through the book Great Controversy on page 488, we are told that Satan hates the great truths that bring to view an atoning sacrifice, that is the cross, and an all-powerful mediator. He hates those truths. Okay? But God has given us the knowledge that Christ is in the most holy place. We have access to him now by faith. And he is going to do a great work in the lives and characters of his people. Now, I want you to, if you will, look here at some of the language that the prophet Malachi employs in describing the work of Christ currently as our high priest. Verse 2, but who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Now, verse 3 says, He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi. Who are the sons of Levi? Exactly, exactly, exactly. And the priests were also the, the ministers and the teachers of Israel, right? So this is a promise that in the last days, God is going to purify his church, the leadership in his church, and by implication then his church. God will do it. And as we're told in the writings of Ellen White, the great issue so near at hand will weed out those whom God has not appointed, and he will have a pure, sanctified ministry prepared for the latter rain. He's going to do it. Okay? Now, it says here that he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in days of old and as in former years. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus is going to accomplish, and we, we need to understand this very carefully, <clears throat> what Jesus is going to accomplish in the most holy place by the power of his high priestly ministry is a purification of his people on this earth before he comes to take them home. <clears throat> now, this just what was stated just here at the moment, we could take lots of time to demonstrate and, and this from the Bible, but let me give you at least one reference and, and I want you to think about this. Here's a verse in the book of Revelation. It says, it's near the end of the book. It says, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly. And my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. In other words, 
Through the intercession of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary, all those who are reaching out for the righteousness of Christ will be made righteous. All those who are refusing the righteousness of Christ will remain unholy, unjust, and when the mediation of Christ is terminated, when it is finished, all characters will remain in that fixed condition morally, whether for righteousness or unrighteousness, they will remain in that condition eternally. Okay? So, what Christ is doing now in the most holy place is he is working in the lives of his people to not only forgive their sins, but to transform their characters and to make them righteous. And he's going to do it. Okay? Now, um, I would like to read a statement here from Testimonies, Volume 2, page 355. We believe without a doubt that Christ is soon coming. This is not a fable to us. It is a reality. And I feel the force of those words as never before as I see what's going on in the church and on and on, and the world, on and on. We have no doubt, neither have we had a doubt for years, that the doctrines we hold today are present truth and that we are nearing the judgment. Now, when this is talking about the judgment, I believe it's talking about the judgment of the living and then the executive judgment. We are preparing to meet him who, escorted by a retinue of holy angels, is to appear in the clouds of heaven to give the faithful and the just the finishing touch of immortality. Now listen carefully. This is totally biblical, but here's a statement that sums it all up. When he comes, he is not to cleanse us of our sins. To remove from us the defects in our characters. Or to cure us of the infirmities of our tempers and dispositions. If wrought for us at all, this work will be accomplished before that time. When the Lord comes, those who are holy will be holy still. Those who have preserved their bodies and spirits in holiness, in sanctification and honor, will then receive the finishing touch of immortality. But those who are unjust, unsanctified, and filthy will remain so forever. No work will then be done for them to remove their defects and give them holy characters. Now listen to this. This quote applies to the passage we are studying, Malachi 3. It says this. The refiner does not then sit. The refiner does not then, that one is when he comes. He does not then sit to pursue his refining process and remove their sins and their corruption. This is all to be done in these hours of probation. It is now that this work is to be accomplished for us. Okay? Um. Recently, uh, and I, I, now this is an idea that I got from someone else, but I, an observation I got from someone else, but it's right on. I was listening to a, a fellow Seventh-day Adventist brother, <clears throat> and he pointed out how that when God promised Abraham a son in Genesis 17, Abraham's reaction was to Laugh. Remember that? He laughed. 
Okay? And he said, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Well, obviously, he and Sarah had a problem because God had said, you, Abraham and Sarah, are going to have a son, and through him will come the Messiah eventually. And God was taking so long to get the job done that they thought, well, you know, God needs some help. And Sarah said, you know, take my handmaid. And, um, well, that didn't turn out so good. But God said, no. He said, you're going to have a son. Well, when you read in Genesis chapter 18, there was three messengers from heaven. One of them must have been Christ. The other two must have been holy angels. And they came to meet Abraham uh, during the day. And he welcomed them and fed them. And then the two angels went off and they said, we're going to go and investigate Sodom to see what's going on there. And the one messenger stayed back who in the Bible says was the Lord. But while the three of them were still there, they said to Abraham, they said, Sarah's going to have a son. And Sarah was in the tent and she left. The Bible says she laughed inside of herself. Didn't even laugh out loud. She laughed inside of herself. And the, and the Lord said, ah, Sarah laughed. And she said, no, I didn't, I didn't laugh. Ah, she was afraid then. Okay. I want to make an observation here. Brothers and sisters, Abraham and Sarah had to be cured of their human nature, and their human nature's disposition was to doubt the word of God. Okay? If you laugh at something... Like Jude says, there will be mockers in the last time. If you laugh at something, you really don't believe it. When you read the book of Malachi, you'll read uh, about eight conversations where the prophet says something and the people argue with what the prophet has said, which is what God is saying, and they, they, they say, hey, you know, how, how is this? They, they, they mock it. They mock it. Abraham and Sarah did not have the promised child until they came to the point of having faith. Now, I would like to take you to the book of Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And starting with um, verse 17. This is talking about Abraham and Sarah. Romans chapter 4 verses uh, 17 and onward. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Now, please observe very carefully verse 19 uh, and and onward. Romans 4.19. And being not weak in faith... He considered not his own body now dead. When he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Here, Paul is describing a time in Abraham's experience where he was not staggering at the promise of God. He was not laughing at the promise of God. The Bible says he was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and he was, how persuaded was Abraham? How persuaded was he? 
The Bible says he was fully persuaded. He was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform, and therefore was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, Paul goes on to say, he says, Now it was not written for his sake alone that was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus the Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Paul is saying, look, I'm giving you this story about a miracle that God did to give the father of the faithful a baby so that you can understand what he can, the power that he has in the redemption of your soul and the transformation of your character. You see that? The Bible says Abraham was fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. Now, some, some of us may be thinking, well, I don't know that my faith is quite up to that level. <clears throat> Let me refer to you uh, of an um, incident in the Gospels in the book Desire of Ages comments on it. I believe it's page 429, Desire of Ages, in the original paging. But it talks about the man who came to Jesus and he said, Lord, he said, I believe, help thou what? Mine unbelief, Right? And then Desire of Ages comments on that, and she says, you can never perish while you do this, never. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. You can never perish while you do this, never. Brothers and sisters, we have got to realize that Jesus is a complete Savior. If you don't have enough faith, he's the author and finish of our faith. If you're weak or whatever your problem is, he is almighty God who's become incarnate in human flesh he intercedes for us in the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary. He says, I have set before thee an open door. No man can shut it. He's almighty God. Amen. And he can give attention to your case as verily as, as if there was no one else in the world. He's almighty God. There's no limit to his capacity to know, to heal, to save, and to redeem. Now, Abraham and Sarah stopped laughing. They came to the point of faith, and God gave them the results. God is going to have a people in these last days who will stop laughing. They will come to the point of complete faith, and they will cooperate with God, and they will have, they will have the results. And like Jesus said in Luke uh, chapter 18, he said, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? The answer to the question, thank you. The answer to the question is yes. The inference to the question is it will be the minority. Most of the world's going to mock and disbelieve the word of God. But there will be a few who will say, you know what? This is truth. We believe, Lord, and are sure that thou art the Christ. Right? To whom shall we go, Lord? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Now, <clears throat> I want to show you a, a little thought here. If you would, I'd like for you to go to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and uh, verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 18. Now, this is on the same subject we're on. At, the moment, at first, you might think, well, why are we looking at this? But you'll see very quickly this is the same subject we're on. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 18. And it should read something like this. I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than you all. Right? Okay, Paul's talking. You... Paul, no doubt, uh, is one of the greatest minds that the gospel ever got a hold of. He was extremely brilliant. And he's simply saying here, I know a whole bunch of languages. 
He says, I thank God that I speak, my God, that I speak with tongues more than you all. Now, this whole chapter about speaking in tongues, the proper protocol, and so forth, things like that. He said, I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than you all. Then you go to the next verse. He said, yet in the church, he said, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. I got to thinking about that recently as I was reading 1 Corinthians 14. Why did Paul say five words? In the church, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding that my, by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Let me suggest for you something. If you go to 1 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 2, um, in fact, if you want, we can look at it, we can turn to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. <clears throat> I want you to notice very carefully the wording here, and you're going to see five words. It's there. It's there. I don't know Greek, but I looked it up in my Greek interlinear and my Young's literal translation, and they both bore out five words exactly. Okay? But here you're going to see five words. I want you to watch this very carefully because this is extremely important to our faith and our salvation. This is not merely an idea of interest. It's a point that's very vital in our relationship to God. Paul says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of, or of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you. And the word I determined not to know means I determined not to make anything known. But, okay. He says, For I determined not to know anything among you, save. The word save means accept. Okay. He says, for I determined not to know anything among you, save, now here's your five words, Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see it? He says, for I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul, the great intellectual that he was, condensed the gospel down to the most simple formula, and it was Jesus Christ and him crucified. This theme will be studied by who knows how many intelligences for, throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. It is an exhaustless theme. How the eternal God could become man and out of love to us pay for our sins. Okay? He says, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I'm convinced when Paul said, I'd, I'd rather speak in the church five words, he was talking about this statement. I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this isn't the only time he uses five words. He uses another five words that say almost the same thing. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you unless he had believed in vain. Maybe I went over that too fast. Let's do it again. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received 
how that, now here comes five words again. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that, here's your five words, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Then he says, according to the scriptures. So here you have your five words again. Christ died for our sins. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the message that needs to go to the world. Christ died for our sins. John uses five words, in my opinion, too, when John one twenty nine, when he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Brothers and sisters, we don't understand it, but there is a, there is a, there is a, a very real divine mystery and yet power about the cross of Christ. Then when you look at the cross of Christ by faith, you embrace Jesus as your Savior, you depend upon him as a complete Savior, no matter how broken or guilty or troubled you may be, Jesus Christ is a complete Savior. And when you look to him by faith, the healing power of the Holy Spirit comes into the soul. Paul believed that if he could get sinners to take one earnest look at the cross, that much would be gained. He was a champion of the cross. You read his writings, he often refers to the the cross of Christ in its power. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. Remember when Jesus was in his interview with Nicodemus, uh, and he referred to the time of Israel when Moses made a serpent symbolizing the sacrifice for sins, and anybody who would look was healed as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, when you read the Bible, and I want to point this out to you because this is true in personal conversion. When you read the Bible, you will see a very close connection between the Spirit of God and the cross of Christ. All right? Let me show you some examples of that. If you would go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the one passage that we just started with. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 2, he says, For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Here Paul is saying, I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he says, my preaching was not with the wisdom of man's words, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Okay, there you have one. Let's go to Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to go to Revelation chapter 5, verse um, 6. There's quite a few references like this. I'll just show you two or three. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. Revelation 5, 6, you're looking here at uh, Christ's intercession in the most holy place. 
And John is looking into the throne room of God. He's describing the throne room of God in symbolic language. And it says in uh, Revelation 5, 6, And I beheld, lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood what? A lamb. A lamb. As it had been slain. So the lamb is symbolic of Christ as it had been slain. In other words, even now while Christ is interceding in the heavenly sanctuary, his blood is available as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are what? The seven spirits of God, which is another name for the Holy Spirit, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. That means your car, your closet, your home, your soul. The seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I'm right there, Christ says, by my spirit. We can have a connection with the heavenly sanctuary by the divine presence of the third person, the Godhead. So here you have two. I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the power of the spirit and of power. Revelation 5, 6, a lamb slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 3. I want to show you two uh, examples of this in Galatians chapter, the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. First, I want to go to verse 14 in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians three fourteen, <clears throat> That the blessing of Abraham, are you there? Galatians three fourteen. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That the blessing of the... Oh, I'm sorry. We need to go one verse above. Sorry. Verse 13. <clears throat> Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. That's his death on the cross. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Okay? So Christ was cursed for us. I'm really, I'm very thankful that Jesus Christ was cursed for me. Very thankful. If it wasn't for that, I would have no hope, none, zero. I would be up for the judgment of God. But Jesus took my curse on the cross. And because of that, I love him. I love him. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now watch verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. What is the blessing of Abraham? That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Do you see that? You got the cross and you got the Spirit. You know, in the book Great Controversy, Ellen White describes the ministry of uh, the Whitfield and George Whitfield and the Wesleys. Thrilling history. But she says in the book, Great Controversy, she says, the Holy Spirit urged them to preach Christ and him crucified. And the power of the highest attended their labors. And multitudes were converted to Christ. Okay? We don't understand it, but the fact of the matter is, is that when you mention the name of Jesus... It's a name which is above every name, at the name of which every knee shall bow. That when you mention that name in love and tenderness, 
Angels draw near to soften hearts. There's power in that name. Now, I just had a thought and I missed it. Um, okay, here. Here's what I want you to think about. <clears throat> Let me ask you this. Do you have guilt in your life? That's nobody's business for you to say here. I'm just asking you the question for the sake of a moment of self-examination. Do you have guilt in your life? Have you given it to Christ? You know, in the book, Great Controversy, in the chapter called Modern Revivals, it says this. It says, we may go to Jesus and be cleansed and stand before the law without shame or remorse. We may go to Jesus and be cleansed and stand before the law without shame or remorse. Now, isn't that a trade? That's a trade, brothers and sisters. That's a trade. You know, we're told we should study the scenes of the, of the cross and of Calvary. You know, I believe when Paul said in Romans chapter 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. I believe we could uh, describe his statement in another way in saying, Paul was saying, I am very, 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 very proud of my Savior because he has taken my shame. Paul said, this is a fable saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. No deep-seated love for Christ can dwell in the heart that does not realize its own sinfulness. But if we feel our need of Christ and we are driven to Christ because we feel our need and we reach out after him, he says, here I am. He says, here I am. Yes. Now, brothers and sisters, if sin costs the almighty God so much, look, look at how much it costs almighty God. He might have failed in the mission who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared he might have failed in his mission. If sin cost almighty God so much, should we not be careful by his grace to stay away from it? Do you realize, brothers and sisters, that when you attack the law, you attack the very heart of Christ? Because the Bible says of Christ, Christ says of himself, I did delight to do, in Psalms 40, verse 8, he says, I did delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. And when Christ died on the cross of a broken heart, he was suffering because of a broken law. Deity trembled and sank at Calvary. Think about it. Deity, omnipotent power, trembled and sank at Calvary. So when you attack Christ, you attack the law. When you attack the law, you attack Christ. Now, one more text on kind of on this theme, this framework here. The book of Galatians, chapter 3, still, but the first two verses in the chapter, Paul says, Galatians chapter 3, he says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you 
that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? In other words, Paul's saying, how in the world can you come to the conclusion that you have a license to continue in sin in view of the fact that Jesus died to pay for your sins? Right? He says, Galatians 3.1, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Now watch this. Here's another cross and Holy Spirit passage. Verse 2 of Galatians 3, he said, This only would I learn of you. This only would I learn of you. I believe he's summing up the book of Galatians right here. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit of God. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. In other words, he's saying, look, there's only one thing I would learn of you. Can you earn your salvation or do you accept it as a gift? When we look at the cross of Christ, the Spirit of God is poured upon the soul And he makes that change in the life, and he endows the person with the transformation of character to live the new life. Okay? Now, Paul said, he said, I die daily. In other words, there is a continual dependence upon Jesus Christ, a continual dependence upon his word. And as we do this, we will gain the victory over sin. You know, brothers and sisters, uh, there's a number of things we in the Seventh-day Adventist Church need to take a look at in our standards, the way we're living. But let me tell you one of the points, and I'll see how many I cover here, but let me share with you one of the points that the devil, like a roaring lion, is trying to get people on in these last days. And that is on the point of sensual pleasure that is transgressing the law of God. Don't buy into this devil's lie that some coveted, illegitimate pleasure is a good thing to get. Run from it. Paul said, flee fornication. Jesus said, He that sins against me wrongs his own soul. Paul says, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Have nothing to do with it. Yeah, you may be tempted by it. That's understandable. But Jesus will give you the victory. And he will enable you to be pure in heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, it says, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. <clears throat> Listen to this statement here very briefly from Mind, Character, and Personality, page 595. If Satan seeks to divert the mind to low and sensual things, bring it back again and place it on eternal things, And when the Lord sees the determined effort to retain only pure thoughts, when the Lord sees the determined effort to retain only pure thoughts, he will attract the mind like the magnet, purify the thoughts, and enable them to cleanse themselves from every secret sin.
Look, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 70, 57, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, he says, Thanks be unto God, which giveth us the victory. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just about done. I think I've about hit my limit here, but let me wrap up and share a couple things. Thanks be unto God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Watch this. And if you would, please go to Romans chapter 8. I want to show you a verse here. Romans chapter 8. Watch this. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Watch. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Are you there? For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. What does the word mortify mean? Yeah, it means, yeah, the mortician. He deals with dead people, right? Mortician. If you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, in other words, put to death the deeds of the body, he says, you shall live. You shall live. And in this very process of the Holy Spirit enabling the soul to overcome, the character is built, the character is strengthened. You know what the Lord wants to do for every single soul in these last days? I believe he wants to do what is described of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph, we know, was a pure man. He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? When his father died, just before his father died, and pronounced the prophetic blessing, or even in some cases curse upon the sons, when he got to Joseph's name, he said, Joseph is a fruitful bough. He said, the archers have shot at him and sorely grieved him. But his bow abode in strength. Brothers and sisters, the character is no stronger than its weakest link. The chain is no stronger than its weakest link. And every link in our character, every aspect of our character, Christ wants to strengthen it up. And Jesus can take the weakest people and make them the strongest. You know, in Hebrews eleven thirty four, it says that out of weakness, they were made strong. Okay. So when you're tempted, cry out to God. Christ died for our sins. When you cry out to God, Christ died for our sins, you're inviting the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will give you power to obey. When you're tempted, say, Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's power in that name. Now, I will finish with this. Let me read this. You only heard part of a sermon today. I'll finish with this. The Book of Evangelism, page 286. It's called Helping Souls to be Converted. Please listen to this very carefully. This is only dealing with one side of the issue, but that's all the time I'm going to take to read. Many have stumbled to ruin because of the erroneous doctrines taught by some ministers concerning the change that takes place at conversion. Listen very carefully. Some have lived in sadness for years. 
waiting for some marked evidence that they were accepted by God. They have separated themselves in a large measure from the world and find pleasure in associating with the people of God. Yet they dare not profess Christ because they fear it would be presumption to say that they are children of God. They are waiting for that peculiar change that they have been led to believe is connected with conversion. After a time, some of these do receive evidence of their acceptance with God and are then led to identify themselves with his people and they date their conversion from this time. But I have been shown that they were adopted into the family of God before that time. God accepted them when they became weary of sin and having lost their desire for worldly pleasures, resolved to seek God earnestly. But failing to understand the simplicity of the plan of salvation, they lost many privileges and blessings which they might have claimed had they only believed when they first turned to God that he accepted them. If there's anybody here today that needs to make your decision for the Lord Jesus, please take this opportunity as your very important moment to make that decision. I pray that you will give your life to him. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you of any practice in your life that is sin, please put it away. Repent of it. Turn from it and go to Jesus for the help. Jesus is an entire Savior. He can give you power to obey.